there, I'm Kyle Unruh, and this is Another Round of Thoughts. I moved to Austin in January of 2017, and like most people who just graduate grad school, I moved into an apartment, found one that I could afford the deposit that was required, one that wasn't too far from my work, and it was just kind of in a cool-ish area, but it definitely wasn't pushing any boundaries. And I've, I've been in this apartment since I moved in Austin. My lease was up in April of this year. And around that time, I shopped around in Austin to see, hey, is this the right time to find a new spot, you know, upgrade. And so we went to an area called South Lamar in Austin. It, it's not really important exactly where it is in the city. Just know that it's the type of apartments in that area are very up and coming. A lot of them have retail on the first floor. You know, there's an orange theory every two blocks, you know, Chipotle is not in sight, that kind of stuff. I did my research a little bit before I went out, but I also just kind of wanted to experience, you know, what are the apartments like in this area? So we, we set out and, you know, we went up and down South Lamar and I, I remember distinctly what it felt like. We started at the first place and this was an apartment complex without giving names that had retail in the in the first level. It had a movie theater that you could also go to and residents got 20% off. And they showed me the floor plan. It was a standard 700 square foot apartment, right? Nothing too fancy. And I was like, okay, you know, I could see myself here. It's, you know, it's, it's a big jump up from the rent that I'm paying now, but you know, I can, I can squeeze this in, right? So I got all the information from this place and moved on to the next place. Similar story. Retail first floor, elevators, laundry service, if you wanted it, Amazon drop-offs, all these things, right? 700 square foot apartment, pretty cookie cutter. I could see myself there, but I was stretching my budget further. And we kept traveling from place to place to place, traveling even further north, even further north, dealing with more traffic, seeing all of these extravagant apartments for the afternoon until we came to the last building that I was going to consider. And at this point, I had stopped... My list had run out, right? So I had stopped coming off of my own suggestions. And now it was just, let's explore an experience. And so we walked into the building and we're like, hey, you know, we're interested in the apartments here. Turns out it was a building of condos. And by our luck, it was an open house that day. So at this point, I was kind of awestruck, right? I was like, oh my gosh, is this the point where I can finally get into a home that I own, like the American dream. Let's have a property where you gain value. You know, everyone says you lose money when you're renting, but let's actually have a property that's in my name. It'd be so cool. So I was starting to fantasize, oh, this is the building I'm going to live in. I'm going to drive this car up in this building and park in my spot and no one's going to park next to me. No door dings, all these things, right? So we go up the elevator. It's on the fourth floor and it overlooks the river and it overlooks downtown. It's a gorgeous view. So we walk in. It's a two bed, two bath condo. And, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident. I'm walking around, I'm walking around. And then all of a sudden we see the realtor come around from the bedroom and said, hey, guys, thanks for coming in. Are you guys interested in buying? And I said, sure, tell me more about it. So she began to tell me about kind of the area and the building. And then just when I thought that this could be in within reach, she said a number that I was not expecting. $750,000 for this condo. 
absolutely outside my budget. At that point, I kept trying to play the part of, yeah, like, oh, <laughs> I come from money, you know, like, oh, this is, you know, in budget. And I was trying to, like, explore the kitchen while she was still telling me things. And I was overwhelmed and I really didn't absorb anything she said. She asked me if I was qualified for a mortgage and if I was going to put money down or what my down payment status was. And I kind of just bs my way through that conversation and somehow you know it ended or whatever and it's all kind of a blur because i was so focused on the reality crashing down that i am not ready to own that property or any property and so at the end of the day i ended up re-signing my lease at my current apartment and even to this day i'm still at this apartment and for a while it felt like a failure on my part that I wasn't ready. But then I was thinking, yeah, I should be proud of myself for being able to, you know, just be in Austin and have a career and get going. Sure, I'm in an apartment. What is this pressure to own a home right away? What is even a timeline look like? And, and if anything, if I'm not ready, surely other people aren't ready, right? This has to be a larger problem. And so diving into that larger problem is what I want to tackle today. I want to look at why millennials are having such trouble getting into their own homes. So beginning this analysis, I have to admit, was pretty emotionally charged. And uh, I uh, always try to start an analysis or working with any data, right, with an objective eye. Data do tell a story, but you should be listening to that story, not framing that story for yourself. I was so convinced that you know, this is a huge problem and I'm going to find crazy, crazy, crazy numbers that's going to make me feel better, right? I didn't feel better at the end of it. But it turns out, based on what I found, it is a challenge. Maybe not necessarily a problem. A problem being something that's out of our control, but more of a problem, some of which is systemic and some of which we can control. So I want to go through all of these different facets of the analysis with you guys now, and hopefully you guys find it interesting. So the first place that I turned to before I tried to find my own data, I just did research on Google to see other people have to be studying this. I mean, this has to be something I hear it on the news all the time about, quote, housing crisis, housing crisis. Right. So I was like, let's find an article from what I would consider a reputable source. So I found a, an article from the Financial Post written by Naomi Powell. And I think it's pretty compelling. She takes a focus in the Canadian market, but the analysis, I think, still applies globally. So I'll, I'll read a quote from, from this article that I think is pretty telling of the systemic problem that's going on here. Every generation, it seems, has a tale of woe about trying to overcome Goliath-like obstacles and making that all-important first home purchase. But Canadian millennials are shouldering a particularly heavy burden by historical standards, one brought on by dizzying price increases, but also lagging incomes and tighter regulations. So the interesting takeaway from my side in this article is, sure, we all know home prices go up, but it says that incomes are lagging meaning that our buying power today is falling further and further behind the home price increases. And I think 
the article is super, super compelling. And I'll, I'll share a link to it on the website um, that we have. And you guys can check it out for yourself. I encourage you to do that. There's a study that Pal cites that you know looked at home prices versus income over a 40 plus, what's that, 41 years? 41 year period starting in 1976 through 2017. And I'm not going to go through all the numbers here, but I want to give you kind of the ratio. And what this ratio means is total home price divided by annual income. And this it doesn't really mean a whole lot on its own, but it gives you a relative figure in terms of affordability for that time period. So a way to interpret that is a smaller ratio means homes are more affordable. So that's kind of the way to interpret it. So in 1976, the ratio uh, for home price versus annual income was four to one. Compare that to 2017, the ratio is 10 to one. So it's gone up by two and a half times over that time period meaning that generations today are 2.5 times less ready, less likely to own a home than they were in 1976. That seems pretty systemic. Our jobs and our wages aren't keeping up. And it makes me wonder, what, <laughs> what can we do with that, right? How can we fix that, get a higher paying job? I don't think that's realistic here. I think, in my opinion, it's just... Don't beat yourself up. What what can we do as just one person? I think you just do the best you can. And if you have to stay in an apartment for longer, there's nothing wrong with that. It also makes me question if home ownership even is the goal. I mean, I can afford rent now, but I can't afford a house. So why should I be aiming for a house? There are other financial ways to improve one's life. So this makes me think, let's get creative, you know, maybe... Maybe housing, being a homeowner, having a mortgage, maybe that American dream is dead. If our wages are that far behind in 2017 versus home prices, screw it. Do something else. All right, so the doom and gloom in the episode is done. All right, I promise. <laughs> Again, this is supposed to be a casual podcast, so I'm done. I'm off my soapbox, all right? So there are some factors that I found when digging into data that I think we can control. And that's really what I want to focus on next. Yes, it's an uphill battle. It's going to be an uphill battle just because of the way the world is today. How can we help from our standpoint? And the way that I think about this is the amount of elbow room we have. So the data I pulled is from a site called Noma, K-N-O-E-M-A. They have an interesting study in data sets and I used some of their analysis as a basis and extrapolated from there to get these results. They look at the size, average size of homes from 1984 to 2017, and that increased from 1740 square feet to 2457 square feet, all right? So that's a jump in about 700 square feet over that time. The average home, all else equal, has gotten larger. At the same time, they also look at census data, and they, they found that the household size has dropped. So it dropped from 2.8 people per home to 2.5 people per home. So think about that. The 
size of our homes has gone up, the number of people living in our homes, number of people that might be able to contribute to a mortgage payment <laughs> has gone down. Now, if it's children, they're not contributing to a mortgage payment, but maybe they will one day. You know, come on, parents, think about it. All right. So given this assumption, it seems that if we want to be more ready to buy homes, buck this trend. All right. I'm not saying to go get a large family and get a large home. Do the opposite. Right. Stay by yourself. Stay with your partner. I don't really care, but get a smaller space. And it, it makes me think this trend towards tiny house living. There are a few YouTube channels that I have come across and some of the spaces, they seem extreme, but like the finances make sense. I'll put a link on the website for this upload as well. If you guys want to check it out. It's fascinating, right? It's almost like yeah, we've kind of been enjoying more space. So get a smaller home and you'll pay less money. It sounds like a no brainer, but it's almost like the development and infrastructure has made it so that it's part of the systemic rise is the fact that bigger homes are being built like the chicken and egg situation. It's a self revolving or perpetual machine. We want bigger homes, bigger homes get built. We purchase bigger homes, therefore bigger homes get built, right? And the price goes up and up and up and up and up. Let's break that cycle. Buy a smaller home. Get rid of some of your stuff. Tidy up, what is it called? Tidy up with Marie Kondo. Is that what it's called? That Netflix show where you get rid of all your stuff, where you go through your closet, you take out all your crap, and then you look at it, you say a thankful statement to it, and then you toss it in the bin. Do that. That's what I'm saying. That's the thing. Get a smaller home and you might be able to afford it or afford it sooner. And then I think there's another interesting study that I was able to find through Noma. And it looks at the renters versus homeowners. And the interesting takeaway here is it's almost like there's a rift. And the rift between homeowners and renters is mostly about the stress it puts on their monthly budgets. So a lot of industry experts say that if you spend more than 35% of your income on rent, you are overextending yourself and you're making a sacrifice somewhere else in your life. So those are considered, I'll consider those extreme homeowners. On the other hand, if you're able to spend less than 20% on your mortgage or home cost or whatever it is, right, you're considered a super saver. Okay, so we're going to look at the proportion of, you know, renters and homeowners in each of these categories, mostly on the extreme ends. Renters spending more than 35% of their income, so being excessive spenders, extreme homeowners, is about 42%. 42% of people that rent an apartment are stretching their budgets. Compare that to homeowners that are the super savers, 20% or less of their income goes to mortgage, 44% fall in that category. That means if you own a home, you are much more likely to be a super saver than you are if you're a renter, you're much more likely to be in that extreme renter category. That just means that if you're renting, it's so much harder for you to even make that jump into home ownership. And it kind of makes sense. Obviously, you're renting an apartment and you don't own the building. Someone else owns the building and likely they're using this as their investment income and they're paying the property taxes and they're paying the insurance and all this stuff, right? All of that is baked into your rent. They are making a profit from you renting the apartment. 
The trade-off is your initial accessibility. You don't have that down payment. So you can move in today, but it's likely going to be a bigger burden on your budget than if you were on the other side of the table and you were the building owner. All right, so then the last little bit of data I want to leave you guys with today is looking at the rent burden again, but looking at it geographically. And so I extrapolated with the same NOMA data to figure this out. And I wanted to look at the top five states that are most difficult to live in just based on the uh, rent or mortgage stress on you know your hard-earned money. And then also the top five lowest burden states in terms of that. So if you're looking to move, uh, I have five recommendations for you and five steer clear of <laughs> if this is your only criteria. And also, as I'm saying that disclaimer, I don't hate any state. So please don't at me on Twitter. All right. So then let's start with the top five highest burden states. So these are the ones where your dollar doesn't stretch as far as anywhere else in the country. Coming in at number five is New York. Number four is Louisiana. Number three is California. Number two is Hawaii. Number one is Florida. So I, I found this to be an interesting list. I mean, New York and California, I kind of expected. Two states I did not expect, Louisiana and Florida. But thinking about it, what do all of these states have in common? They have a coast and they have a lot of tourism. I mean, Louisiana is Mardi Gras. New York is New York City. California is wine, beaches, mountains, trees, everything. Literally everything. Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> Hawaii is California on steroids minus any snow or any mountain. I guess they have mountains in Hawaii, but I guess it's volcanoes. Tourism. Well, let's just call it tourism. In Florida, Disney World, Universal, you know, top entertainment vacation destinations. You know, so it's like beaches and vacations are like tourism heavy. These are tourism heavy states. And so it seems that if you live in a tourist heavy beach front state, you're paying a premium even if you don't want to enjoy those perks, right? Even if you just live there and, you know, you drive by Disney World and like, oh, I don't want to, it's not the happiest place on earth or whatever. So that's, I think that's interesting to think about. And then let's contrast that with the lowest burden states. So these are the ones where you're making, not making big bucks necessarily, but your rent is way more comfortable than other states. So the fifth Lowest burden state. So coming at number five is Kansas. Number four is Nebraska. Number three is North Dakota. Number two is South Dakota. And number one is Wyoming. Something interesting about all of these states is they don't have a coast. There ain't no water. Kansas is dry. I lived there from kindergarten to second grade, never went swimming once. So there you go. Kansas is wonderful, lovely state. Shout out to White Castle. But yeah, it's... There's no, there's not as much tourism in these states. There's no water. It seems like they're all geographically clumped together. And a big industry in all of these states is energy, oil and gas, coal, petroleum, all in these states, right? Either they're transporting it or they're figuring it out themselves. I wonder if that's really what's contributing to these, you know, low burden states. Granted, it's probably not the best for the environment, but economically, seems pretty good in terms of giving people places to live that they can actually afford. All right. So this is kind of the end of the first episode. And one thing that I'm thinking about doing for my episodes going forward is something called quick shots. And these are supposed to be just kind of 
high summary talking points so that if you're in public, you're at a bar, this is supposed to be a bar atmosphere. If you're at a bar, what are your talking points so you can chime into any conversation and hit them hard with some real ass knowledge? All right. The quick shots for today are tourism heavy states are going to cost you more to live there. Renters are straining their incomes way more than homeowners. We're living in far too big of spaces. Downsize, save your money. And lastly, but not least, it's not really our fault. This is about years and years and years of home price inflation without our jobs catching up. All right, those are your quick shots for today. Thanks for tuning in. Again, my name is Kyle Unruh. I would love to hear from you guys outside of these episodes. Was this interesting? Do you want to burn your computer because it was so boring? The good and the bad, the ugly, right? Uh, reach out to me. I'd love to hear. So we have a Twitter at another round of thoughts. That's the handle. And yes, it's the full words. There are two R's in the middle. I'm not doing anything fancy with combining letters, anything trendy. Maybe I should. I don't know. Anyway, it's at another round of thoughts. And then we have a website, anotherroundofthoughts.com. Feel free to reach out on either of those platforms. Oh, and then there's also an email address if you would prefer to go old school, anotherroundofthoughts at gmail.com. All right, bottoms up, everyone. Next round's on me.